It is Friday, October 30th, 2020, and you are listening to the Federalist Forum, a constitutional think tank for every patriotic American. Today on the Federalist Forum, I'm going to dive into the deep workings of the Electoral College. That and more, coming up next on the Federalist Forum. Good afternoon and happy Friday. Welcome to the Federalist Forum. I'm your host, Tom. Thank you for tuning into the podcast that's become a popular resource for conservative truth and action. The podcast that is more reliable than any media outlet, large or small. A very important topic today. I want to share some insight into the Electoral College for those who may not have a more comprehensive grasp of it. There's a lot of intricacies, a lot of questions that can arise about it. And it's not as black and white as it may seem. Uh, The Electoral College is, of course, the method used in our constitutional republic for indirectly electing the President of the United States. It was established by Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 of the U.S. Constitution, and later modified some by the 12th and 23rd Amendments. I will spare you having to listen to me read those clauses and amendments verbatim, but that's where you can find the context and foundation of the Electoral College's establishment. The Electoral College consists of a total of 538 members, which is one for each U.S. Senator and Representative and three additional electors representing the District of Columbia. Each state has a number of electoral votes equal to the combined total of its congressional delegation, and each state legislature is free to determine the method it will use to select its own electors. Currently, all states select electors through popular vote, although that's how, how that vote can differ in different areas, uh, but that wasn't always the case throughout American history. In many states, the state legislature uh, selected electors, a practice which was common until the mid-1800s. So what does that nomination of electors process look like? Well, it's not like you, the people, we the people, I should say, go out and vote for them on ballots. In very few cases are they listed on ballots. Uh, Currently, Um, The U.S. Constitution does not specify procedures for the nomination of candidates for presidential elector. The two most common methods the states have adopted are nomination by state party convention or nomination by state party committee. Generally, the parties select members known for their loyalty and service to the party, such as party leaders, state and local elected officials, and party activists. In some states, the electors' names appear on the ballot along with the names of the candidates for president and vice president. However, in most states, electors' names are not printed on the ballots. When a voter casts a vote for a candidate for the president of the United States, he or she is in actuality casting a vote for the presidential electors who were selected by that candidate's party. The electoral votes are awarded in only one of two ways. The first is the winner-take-all system. In 48 states and the District of Columbia, when a candidate for president wins the state's popular vote, that party's slate of electors will be the ones to cast the vote for the president of the United States in December. For example, Florida has 29 electoral votes. If President Donald Trump wins the state's popular vote on November 3rd, the 29 electors nominated by the Republican Party in Florida will be selected. These 29 people gather on December 14th to cast their votes for president of the United States. The second way electoral votes are awarded is the district system, and only two states do this. Maine and Nebraska are the only two states that do not use the winner-take-all system. Instead, those two states, in those two states, one electoral vote is awarded to the presidential candidate who wins the popular vote in each congressional, des- congressional district, 
and the remaining two electoral votes are awarded to the candidates receiving the most votes statewide. This is known as a district system. And it is possible under the district system to split the electoral vote for the state. And that happened, in fact, in 2008 in Nebraska. Barack Obama won the electoral vote in the congressional district, including Omaha, while John McCain won the state's other two districts and won the statewide vote as well, securing the state's two at-large votes. Thus, when Nebraska, the Nebraska presidential electors met in December of 2008, there were four Republican electors and one Democrat. That election was the first time in Nebraska's history, really, that the electoral vote was split. Uh, now, what about dissent? A common question is whether or not electors have to vote for the popular vote winner. And the short answer is a no, they don't. Uh, it's very unusual, but they don't, and in some cases they haven't. Electors can dissent and have done so in history. Uh, they are known as faithless electors. Now, there's no federal law or constitutional provision requiring electors to vote for the party that nominated them. Uh, and over the years, a number of electors have voted against the instructions of the voters. Electors generally are selected by the political party for their party loyalty, though, and many are party leaders, and thus not likely to vote uh, other than for what their party's wishes are, their party's candidate. Still, in 2016, there were seven faithless electors, the most since 1972. There were three Democratic electors from Washington State that cast their votes for Republican Colin Powell instead of Democrat Hillary Clinton. One Democrat elector from Washington State cast his vote for Faith Spotted Eagle, a woman who is a member of the Yankton uh, Sioux Nation. One Democratic elector from Hawaii cast his vote for Bernie Sanders instead of Hillary. And one Republican elector from Texas cast his vote for uh, John Kasich instead of Trump. You know, there's, and actually there was another one from uh, Texas that cast his votes for Libertarian Ron Paul. Now, the last time an elector crossed party lines before that was 1972. It's... It's very rare, but it can happen. Now, now while there's no federal law that requires them, there are some state laws uh, that have been passed that require their electors to vote as pledged. Does that mean they still do? Well, obviously, they've, they've broken that pledge in, in certain instances. Now, these laws may impose a fine on an elector who fails to vote according to the statewide or district popular vote, or may disqualify an elector, or both, who violate you know, their pledge and provide a replacement elector. So, I mean, even as recently in July of this year, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that it is absolutely constitutional for states to enact those types of laws. Now, there are 32 states that have such laws. Rather than list all of them, I'll tell you the 18 states who have no laws requiring their electors to vote as pledged. And those states are Arkansas, Georgia, Idaho, Illinois, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Missouri, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, North Dakota, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Dakota, Texas, Utah, and West Virginia. And there's some swing states in there, so it can get a little dicey. And the laws in place for the other 32 states all vary. Most of the laws require electors to vote for the candidate of the party that nominated the elector or require the elector to sign a pledge to do so. Some go further. Oklahoma imposes a civil penalty of $1,000. In North Carolina, the fine is 500. The faithless elector is deemed to have resigned and a replacement is appointed. In South Carolina, an elector who violates their pledge is subject to criminal penalties. And in New Mexico, a violation is a fourth-degree felony. So it varies differently everywhere. In Michigan, a candidate who fails to vote as required is considered to have resigned and a, place, and a replacement is appointed. Well, that could be too late after the damage is done. However, there are no instances 
in history, at least to this point, and boy, we are in a bizarre year, uh, that faithless electors have had some kind of impact on the ultimate outcome of the election. Now, many on the left have argued that the Electoral College is flawed. Of course, because it didn't work their way in 2016. In fact, many say that the Electoral College violates the core tenet of democracy. But they fail to grasp that the very reason it works the way it does is because the founders wanted to protect the will of the majority from being forcefully imposed on the minority. And the electoral system does this best. But during his last speech before the Constitutional Convention in 1787, Benjamin Franklin was asked what sort of government the Constitutional Convention had created. And many know this is famous words. Benjamin Franklin said, a republic if you can keep it. And one of the more notable points of contention between liberals and conservatives is the argument over what type of government the United States is. Liberals, quite counterintuitive to their own ideals, argue relentlessly that we are a democracy. And while our government employs some democratic principles, most notably the election of representatives, the framework of our functioning government is a constitutional republic, and that is different. The greatest difference between the two is how laws are enacted. That is a very important distinction, as laws ultimately determine societal order and structure. They preserve our rights and ensure that equality prevails. In a pure democracy, laws are made directly by the voting majority. This leaves the rights of the minority largely unprotected. In a republic, Laws are made by representatives chosen or elected by the people. Those laws and representatives must comply with the Constitution, which specifically protects the rights of the minority from the will of the majority. That is a huge difference in the two types of governments. In a republic, an official set of fundamental laws, like our Constitution and Bill of Rights, prohibits the government from limiting or taking away certain inalienable rights of the people, even if that government was freely chosen by a majority of the people. You know, conversely, in a pure democracy, the voting majority has almost limitless power over the minority. And it's this distinction that causes me to raise my eyebrows any time liberals want to argue to the contrary. They are most free. We are all most free, most equal, and most protected in a republic. You know, liberals may try to conflate the terminology by referring to us as a democratic republic. Now, from a functional sense, they aren't completely wrong. However, from a literal sense, it only reinforces the emphasis on republic. Using democratic is merely a descriptor of only one characteristic. It's no different than saying minor league baseball. The framework of the game of baseball is defined. The aspect of it being minor league projects only one of its functions, not its governing set of rules. Maybe in a bit of an oversimplification as compared to the convolutions of a system of government, but it's truly no different in concept. The object or the subject is our republic. Employing some democratic principles are actions of that republic, not the premise or function of the framework. So the Constitutional Convention exercised a profound amount of foresight in framing our government to be certain that the government's function and role would be the subject of the people and not the other way around. If we were a pure democracy, we would be more of an authoritarian state where there would be undoubtedly, there would be definitely be oppression in the United States instead of the manipulated conjecture of it. The United States is not a pure democracy. And in fact, there was an article by The Independent in 2018 that reported that there are only 19 true democracies in the world. And the U.S. isn't on that list. What's even more profound is that more than one-third of true democracies do live under authoritarian rule. Now, perhaps this is just one more ways, one of the ways that liberals feign the psychology of this 
made-up victimhood that they cling to so desperately. I mean, could it be possible that liberals want so badly to be subjugated that they have willfully misunderstood the premise of our government only to justify their false narratives? Likely, like everything else. But further consideration should also be given to the Economic Intelligence Unit, which is a global initiative whose expertise helps to produce the highest quality research, analysis, and data about countries, cities, industries, and companies. And their 2018 rankings listed the United States Democracy Index as 25th in the world. The U.S. is even considered a flawed democracy in their system of metrics. As we should. We are not a pure democracy. And that was never the intent of our founding fathers. From multiple angles, there is information out there. There are data and metrics in the context of our Constitution that explain this. And the world recognizes it. We recognize it. Democrats don't for some reason. The electoral college system was chosen by our founders because there was little enthusiasm for allowing the president to be chosen primarily by lawmakers in densely populated areas. They wanted to protect everybody across the country. Well, finally, a very rare but outside scenario. What happens if no candidate gets a majority? Well, in, in that instance, the House of Representatives, the lower house of U.S. lawmakers, will then vote to elect the president. This has happened only once, when in 1824, four candidates split the electoral vote, denying any one of them a majority. With two parties dominating the U.S. system, this is unlikely to ever happen today. And considering the current majority of obstructionists in the House, thank God for that. Hey, that is all I have for today. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd be very grateful if you'd take a minute to share it with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave me a review uh, if you'd be so kind. Feel free to follow and engage with me on Parlor. My handle is at ExposingLibsBS. I hope you have a fantastic, healthy weekend out there. Stay safe. Stay safe. Stay, stay safe. Boy, tongue twister at the end of this today. Uh, get out there and vote if you haven't. And just watch your backs. My last podcast, I talked quite a bit about what to prepare for with this upcoming election. That is really real stuff. So, friends, it is time for all of us to passionately take action. And we, the people, have a proud history of doing just that. You've been listening to the Federalist Forum. Thank you for your listenership and for your patriotism as we fight together to preserve the founding principles of our constitutional republic. Until next time, sapientia est potentia. Wisdom is power.